We're going to get into the book of Zechariah, chapter 5 tonight. Pretty excited about it. When I first read it, I was not very excited about it. So I literally had no idea what was going on. Which is maybe if you read ahead, maybe you're thinking the same thing. How in the world is this going to make sense? Well, it's actually not that hard. So we'll look at it tonight and we'll see what the Lord has for us. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for the book of Zechariah and how, Lord, you're using it in my life to constantly bring uh, lessons to me and constantly bring vision and encouragement. And uh, Lord, I just I give you praise, Jesus, for how you're using it. And Lord, I thank you that it's one of the books, the, the 66 different reflections of you that we have in our Bible, Lord. And I thank you that, Lord, it's here for a specific purpose. And Lord, each one of us now are here as part of the church. And Lord, um, you have a specific purpose for us, just like this book, Lord. And, and for some of us, it's, you know, we've been experiencing that and seeing you use us and others of us. Lord, there's been something in the way that has been prohibiting uh, you from using us as greatly as you would love to. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight you would begin to teach us and begin to free us from all the things that hold us back. All the things, God, that, that, um, that you don't intend for our life. Lord, we, we are told and we've, we've been studying in Ephesians how, Lord, you have every spiritual blessing imaginable already available to us by simply faith, by, by being in Christ, by trusting what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we want to believe. We want to see, uh, hear you um, speak something to us. And then, Lord, we want an opportunity to be able to believe. And we thank you that we have this night where we could choose to believe. And, uh, Lord, pray that every word that comes out of my mouth would be straight from you, would be exactly what you have for us, me included, and that my heart would be soft as I hear your word uh, and, and read your word tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, We've seen quite a bit so far in the book of Zechariah. We've only gone through four chapters, uh, and there's 14 chapters in this book. And you may be thinking, wow, this book is filled with so much. Uh, so let's kind of review just a little bit of what we've seen so far in the book of Zechariah. We saw uh, that God called his people to have a soft heart right at the beginning. He's like, you know, just have a soft heart. Return to me and I'll return to you, said the Lord. And, and I talked about coming back to the Lord. And, and so our, our, our picture that we have or the, the, the title of our series is a restoration project because God is wanting to restore his people. And we've looked at the historical aspect of how they were coming back from Babylon and, and their, their uh, spiritual identity was just broken down. The entire city of Jerusalem, which, which houses the Jewish spiritual identity, is just busted up. No one's lived there. It's just a pile of rocks. It's broken. Just like many of us in our life, our spiritual identity is just broken. We've been through so, much, so many trials, so much suffering, so much disappointment that we just don't have spiritual direction. We don't have a place to go to find spiritual truth, and we certainly don't have a positive spiritual relationship with God. But God, we've seen in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he takes the initiative to begin restoring his people. And so he's doing that, 
He says, I'm in the midst of you when we saw that vision, the first vision, because we're seeing this one night of Zechariah's crazy visions. And the first one was the Jesus, the, the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus. And we studied that. He's standing in the midst of the myrtle trees and all the horses are there. And, and the purpose of that vision for us was to understand that Jesus is in the midst of us and he, is, he is, cares about you. He's not going to let you just wander through this life on your own. And so he's in the midst. And then we saw we started the Lord uh, doing some work and how he would begin to do this work. And we saw some craftsmen and how those craftsmen also were a picture of Jesus and how craftsmen was the Hebrew word that we eventually got carpenter, which is where what Jesus was. And I remember I was like so amazed when I learned Jesus was a carpenter for a reason. Like, I never understood that. Why was Jesus a carpenter? And I didn't understand that. It fulfilled a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 2. Blew my mind. So, we saw that. And, uh, and then we saw the Lord uh, committed to defending his people from the attacks of the Lord. and from, or Not from the attacks of the Lord. The attacks of those four uh, countries that were going to um, come against his people. So, we saw his commitment to defend them. And then we saw... Him start to get into the deep parts of their spiritual life. So he took Joshua, their high priest, and he 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 stood before him. And Joshua was wearing all these filthy clothes. You remember that? And and Jesus said, "Take off those filthy clothes and give him brand new clothes." This is at the beginning of chapter three and of chapter two. And 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 Jesus clothes him with pure clothes, pure white clothes, and even puts a crown on his head. Um, speaking of of. Joshua experiencing the salvation relationship with Jesus where he's now clean from his sin. And then Jesus says, now, Joshua, I'm going to use you. I want you to be used. And I care about the spiritual relationship uh, with my people and their, their spiritual health. And so you're going to be the high priest. And so we saw throughout the, the second half of chapter three and all of chapter four, a huge lesson on ministry on how we can be used by the Lord, how you and I are used by the Lord, and how Joshua was taught to use the Lord. And what was the big lesson in that? To rely on the Spirit. Don't do it out of your flesh. Rely on the Holy Spirit. And he did that. He taught us that through this picture of the two olive trees dripping oil into this golden bowl which had seven pipes going down into the lamp, into the seven-armed lampstand or menorah, and how... That picture was different than what they had in the in the temple. It required no human effort. It was just like a a self uh, filling uh, lampstand that never needed people. And that's how the Lord does designed ministry to work. Your Christian life is to be fueled by the Holy Spirit, not by your efforts. And that's the big the big lesson from chapter three and chapter four is it's all about the Holy Spirit. All right. So now we get to chapter five. The Lord addresses in these in this chapter some sins. Some sins that the nation he loves have been committing and his people have been committing. And I don't even think they know they were involved in these sins. But the reason why God is bringing these up is because these sins are are going to prohibit them from being used. These sins are going to handcuff them. These sins are going to trip them up. You see, it's great that they're learning how to be used by the Lord and how to be filled with the Spirit. But these sins, 
are going to be a, a, a snare to them and like a pit, a pitfall where they're going to they're going to get tripped up. You know, a young woman confessed, uh, went to confession to her priest and uh, she said, you know, I'm guilty of the sin of pride. Oh, my goodness. I'm so prideful. Every time I look in the mirror, I just think I'm so beautiful. And the priest said, you know, that's that's not a sin. That's a mistake. (laughs) I love jokes. Anyway, so what they are doing in Israel is they were actually sinned. It it, it wasn't just a mistake. They they had a sin, a deep-rooted heart problem that God's going to wrestle out of them through these two visions. And you're... when you first read them, you're like, what? How, how is that going to happen? But I hope it happens in us too. I hope when, when we look in our hearts and we see that there's some sort of sin that's taken root and, and is at home in our hearts, that we allow the Lord to, to take it out of us as well. All right? And it's cool because he does this through visions. And I heard someone say, and so I just have to repeat it, uh, you know, we get a lot of freedom from these visions as we're, as we're reading these visions a lot more freedom than you get from watching television I thought that was a cool way because you know as you're spending time with the Lord and his visions he brings freedom to you as opposed to whatever we get from watching television so let's look at chapter 5 and see what we have he says then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll and he said to me what do you see So I answered, I see a flying scroll, and its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. And I will send out the curse says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. So again, the first time I read this with my 21st century mind and my Twitter and my Facebook and everything that I have in my brain, I don't get it. I do not understand what in the world he's talking about. And that's why we have lovely commentaries and great pastors and teachers that tell us, that help us understand culturally what this meant and spiritually what it means to us, because this is actually pretty awesome. So let me start to break it down. If you are ever wanting to study things, man, go to blueletterbible.com and look at the commentaries there. Those guys will lead you in a great direction. You can look at the Greek and the Hebrew and it translates it for you and you can actually see, oh, it's great. When, when you guys get to that level, you will be rocking and rolling. So, but let's start by unraveling this, this vision here. First of all, we see this flying scroll. And it's 30 feet by 15 feet. That is a big flying scroll. <laughs> and these are, it's interesting <clears throat> This blows my mind a little bit. Those are the exact same dimensions as the holy place in the tabernacle and the porch of uh, Solomon's temple. So I see there that he's drawing our mind towards the holiness. 
and the holy place. That's the same measurements of the holy place. And, and so this, what he's talking about, has something to do with holiness in our life. Okay? So, and he says here that these, this flying scroll is the curse, and written on this scroll is these sins. Okay? So there's these sins. The first sin is, is says it's a thief. <clears throat> the second one is perjury. Or lying, basically. and uh, Well, perjuring. So thief is to injure your neighbor, to steal something. It's a, it's a sin against another human being. Sins against people. And then perjuring here is dishonoring God, or basically sinning against God, because you swore in his name. You're not honoring him. So you don't honor your neighbor and their property and their possessions, and then you don't honor God. Okay, which is exactly the same as the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? The Ten Commandments were written on two tablets. The first side dealt with your relationship with God. The second side dealt with your relationship with man. And there was the two sins kind of measured, uh, measured out and divided in those two ways. So you could think about it. Okay, this is my relationship with God, and these are how I can sin in that way, not honoring him, swearing falsely by his name, not keeping the Sabbath, the, those, those commandments. And then there's the commandments about stealing, lying, and, and killing, and all my fellow people. Okay, so sin is, is, is divided in those two ways. And he says here, I will send out the curse. So this whole thing, these sins, say I will send out the curse. So these rules that we have in the Ten Commandments and the consequences related to them are designed by God. That's what it means. Okay, so when he sees these sins in the nation of Israel, he says, I am going to send out a curse. Now you're thinking in your mind, wait a second, these are his people. Why would God want to curse his people? Is God angry at them? Is God mad at them? And the answer is, he, well, we'll get to that in just a second. (laughs) He sends out the curse because it's part of his character. Sins and the consequences related to them are designed by God. They are part of his character. So the lesson of this vision is, look at the previous four chapters. God says, I want to use you. I want to. I want to restore you. I'm willing to clean you. I'm working powerfully in your life and on your behalf. But your continual sins are grieving me and handcuffing the work of God in your life. I want to use you guys. I would love to use you. You could be the next missionary. You could be the next pastor. You could be the next great person used by God, evangelist, or whatever he has for you. But sins choke that out. These ones specifically, okay? Just like uh, in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. God has called you out of that life of sin. And he's provided all that you need to live free of that lifestyle, to live free of that bondage. Yet we choose to go back because it's comfortable. Because it's familiar and because 
we still have our flesh. And it pleases our flesh. So we have this war, this flesh versus the spirit. And the spirit inside is constantly calling us. No, don't you wish sometimes the spirit would use a hammer to push us and, and bang us out of the sinful lifestyle? But he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't do that. But he does use curses. A curse. Now, I think of a, when I first think of a curse with my 21st century brain, I think of a witch from a Disney show and her putting a curse on somebody. And I don't really, I can't really understand why God would, what it means that God uses a curse. And so I got to kind of understand, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? What, what is a curse in the Bible? God has called us out of this life of sin, and he will, he'll kind of throw us a curse every now and then to remind us, don't go back. Don't go back. It's really awful. It's really lame back there. In Ephesians 4.30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So walk worthy, filled with the Spirit. As we studied the last couple of weeks, His Spirit fills us and burns in us as the spiritual power source in our lives. His Spirit does that. And he says, when we choose to sin, we are forgiven. You guys are forgiven. You can go sin right now and you're forgiven. But, and this is a huge but, we grieve the Spirit. That same Spirit that loves us, number one, and fills us constantly forgives us, we make him sad. We grieve him when we choose to sin. The same spirit who Romans 5, 5 says, this, um, uh, let me just read it because I'm drawing a blank on it. Did you guys get my, see my blog today? It was, came on about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Go to our website, whiteflagcalvary.org and look at the blog and there's a new video blog. Yeah, it's on our YouTube channel too. So if you go there, you can see, and I kind of talk about this, this verse, but it says in, in Romans 5, 5, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So God is just constantly pouring out, I love you, I love you, I love you, into your heart through the Holy Spirit. You say, I love you, I care about you, I have a plan for you. Holiness, righteousness, it's all yours. I just, I've loved you so much, you don't even understand it. But, you grieve me when you sin. It grieves him when we sin. Although the word grieve, this is a quote from Spurgeon. You guys know I love Spurgeon, right? <laughs> well, listen to this quote by Spurgeon. I got two quotes from Spurgeon today. You get double. The second one's free. Okay? <clears throat> this one. He says, although the word grieve is a painful one, yet there is honey in the rock. For it is an inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever-blessed God 
condescends to enter into such an infinite relationships with his people that the divine mind may be affected by their actions. What a marvel that deity should be said to grieve over the faults of being so utterly insignificant as we are. Whoa. Number two, here's another quote, just to blow your mind, because I like doing that. Sin everywhere must be displeasing to the spirit of holiness, but sin in his own people is grievous to him in the highest degree. He will not hate his people, but he does hate their sin. And he hates them all the more because they nestle in his children's bosoms. The Spirit would not be the Spirit of truth if he could approve of that which is false in us. He would not be pure if that which is impure in us did not grieve him. So we're kind of painting the picture of his Spirit being grieved. So we have this flying scroll in Zechariah 5. And he's got the sins written on it. And he's like, people, I love you so much. I want to use you. But you've got sins. And so I'm going to send a curse. It's going to go through my land. And people are going to start to hurt a little bit. They're going to start to hurt a little bit. So God sends out a curse so that we can feel just a little bit, just a wee little bit of how his heart feels when we sin. The intense, burning hatred that he has for the sin that destroys his beloved children. Wow. When I think of a curse like that, it doesn't seem quite so bad. So yeah, it's, it's a bummer that I have to feel a little bit of pain and some consequences. But it's quite an amazing thing that the God of the universe just wants me to understand a little bit of how he feels, how he thinks. And that kind of connection and communion and friendship cannot be bought. That's an amazing amount of friendship. So the curse, I want to look a little bit about what that, what that is, the curse. It says here that the curse will enter the house of his people. So you send out this curse, this flying scroll representing these things, and it's going to enter the house. The place where you feel safe is your house, right? Where you retreat to, where you rest in. It's the last place you think you're going to have to deal with consequences. It's the last place you think you're going to have to deal with God. And your relationship with God is in your house. Yet, God allows this curse to creep in, up on you, and in your safest, most secure place, and there's no getting away from it. There's no escape. There's no escape. Sometimes it affects your family as well as yourself. Just ask Achan in Joshua chapter 7. You guys remember the story of Achan? He, you know, he, he had some materialism. He, he, they were coming into the land and... and they conquer a city, and God says, everything in this first city is for me. You bring it in to me, and it's, for, it's set aside for the Lord. And Achan saw some stuff, and he took it, and he hid it in his, in his tent, buried it under his tent. Materialism, and stupid materialism, too, because he found a Babylonian garment. Now, he lives in Israel with a bunch of Israelis. 
when is he ever going to have an opportunity to wear a Babylonian garment? Hey, Achan, you're looking pretty good today. Is that from Babylon? Where'd you get that? Stupid. Unsmart. I don't know how else to say it. Achan's materialism made him dumb. And it's so sad because God finds it out. You know, God ex- tells everyone. They go to the next battle. A bunch of people die and all the people are grieved. God, why did you let us die? And God's like, bro, there's sin in the camp. You go find out who, who did this. Because I'd love to give you victory, but I can't when there's sin. I'd love to just give you blessings. But instead, there has to be a little bit of a curse. You have to feel a little bit of pain. Well, that's so unfair. Well, it's my country. It's my land. I'm God. What are you going to do? So Aiken's Aiken's found out. Aiken says, okay, I did it. I did it. And they stoned him and his whole family. They all died. Because our families are affected by our sin, too. Our family is just as affected. And that's why people are so deceived by sin. They think it's just them. Oh, it's fine if I just go out to the club and stay out all night and do my own, sow my wild oats and, and come back. No one's affected. No one was hurt. I just had a good time, right? And they don't understand that the curse touches your home. The curse enters the house, is what he said here. I love my children and my wife. I do not want them to have to suffer because of me. That would be lame. And I'm sure you guys feel the same way. And and that's that's a motivating factor to stay away from sin. So the curse enters this house. People can be so hard against God and the consequences of their sin until they see their closest family members suffer because of something they did. Now, sometimes that's what breaks a person down when they see their child crying because of the consequences of their sin or the black eye on their wife because they were drunk and smashed them up or whatever. Sometimes that's what breaks them and sometimes it just makes them harder. It just makes them feel like I have a right to sin and be happy and no one can tell me not to sin. And it's so sad when those consequences work It's great, and when they don't work, it's so sad. And then it says, not only does it enter their house, but it will remain in the midst of it, is what the Bible says. Because ignoring God's rules and God's law doesn't make it go away. Time does not heal sin. Running away does not fix it. Only repentance works. Turning back to the Lord. Well, that's the one thing I don't want to do. Well, sorry. Then then the curse is going to remain with you. Oh, but that's ten years ago I did that sin and I've been running from it for ten years and I'm just fine. Really? Are you? Is that why you cry every night in your pillow? Is that why you know your heart is hard toward the things of God and your family? Is that why your wife hates you? Is that why there's all these curses and consequences in your life? Really, are you okay from running from the Lord? Is that okay with you? No, it doesn't work. Only repentance works. Revelation 3.19 says, As many as I love, 
I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, the book of Revelation is great because it just, it gives us understanding of so many things and it just ties up so many things in the Bible and says, here's the way you can understand it. And he says, I, here's the whole thing with consequences. Here's the whole thing with my curses and my, my rebuking and, and my chastening. If you really want to understand what it's all about, here it is. I love you. That's what it's about. So be zealous and repent. You can't run from my love. Just be zealous and repent, which just means turn back to me. I'm going to read you a quote from Oswald Chambers, who is maybe number one, too. He's like 1A as far as my favorite like preacher guys, except Oswald Chambers is more of an author, whereas Spurgeon was more of like the preacher guy. Chambers writes some books that are, I mean, manly. You guys got to read some Oswald Chambers. So... Listen to this one on on repentance. He says, It is not repentance that saves me. Repentance is the sign that I realize what God has done in Christ Jesus. The danger is to put the emphasis on the effect instead of on the cause. Is it my obedience that puts me right with God? Never. I am put right with God because prior to all else, Christ died. And when I turn to God and by belief accept what God reveals... Instantly, the stupendous atonement of Jesus Christ rushes me into a right relationship with God. By the miracle of God's grace, I stand justified, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. The salvation of God does not stand on human logic. It stands on the sacrificial death of Jesus. Sinful men and women can be changed into new creatures by the marvelous work of God in Christ Jesus, which is prior to all experience. So, you enter into a relationship with God, you're saved. So then repentance is something awesome and easy. All we do is say, man, I'm a sinner. I agree with you, God. These are sins in my life. Lying, I'm, I'm hurting other people perjuring, I'm, I'm misrepresenting you, I'm, I'm not honoring you, I'm, I'm sinning against people, I'm sinning against you, God, I want to, I repent, I turn around. That's what it's all about. It's not about, I'm going to try harder to stop sinning, I just repent. And that's what he's trying to get the nation of Israel to understand with this vision. So you guys, there's going to be a curse if you don't just repent. Just repent. Now, the Lord focuses on just one issue that's causing a great problem for his people, and that's materialism. Materialism. So yes, they're hurting other people. Yes, they're dishonoring God. And those things need to be dealt with. They need to repent. But now he's going to give us another vision, and it's going to be about materialism. Okay, so I want to tell you that beforehand, because as we're reading, you're going to be like, what is going on? And you're going to feel lost, and I'm, I'm just I'm preparing the way for you. To understand it. So look at verse 5 of chapter 5 of Zechariah. This is the vision of the woman in a basket. And the angel who talked to me came out and said, Lift your eyes now and see what goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, there is, uh, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, 
This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of Shinar, where it will be ready. The basket, when it is ready, the basket will be set on its base. <laughs> what in the world is he talking about? How in the world? Uh, what? This is, this is where I'm just like, I'm lost. When I read that the first time, the first ten times, I'm like, okay, Lord, I really want to understand. And I just, I had nothing. I'm like, what is going on here? But I read some commentaries and I started to dig and to look into it. And there's really neat stuff in this. And there's something for us here. Okay? So these baskets, okay? The, the key words here are basket and woman. And, and you're going to see kind of how these things. So the first thing we got to understand is baskets. The baskets were, were, is what commercial goods were kept in in Babylon. Where are the nation? Where are the children of Israel coming out from right now? Babylon. They've just spent seventy years in Babylon. Now, before they went to Babylon, before those seventy years, what kind of economy did the nation of Israel have? They were agrarian. They were farmers. They grew stuff on the land, and it was peaceful and great. Okay, so then Babylon comes in, takes them out there, and they're not allowed to own land. The Jews weren't allowed to own land in Babylon. And so they had to figure out other ways of making money, which is actually very similar to what happened to them uh, throughout the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages uh, in Europe. And they, they were, it was illegal for Jews to own land for many hundreds of years in Europe. So they had to go towards other banking-type trades, and that's why, that, that's why their culture developed around that. Okay? But listen, it's a problem. It's a problem. In, in uh, Babylon, they loved their commercial goods. So much so. It was, it, what this symbolizes is materialism. The woman shows that they were in love with the commercial goods that they were selling in Babylon. They were in love with that lifestyle. Because when you sell commercial goods, you get the profit right away. No delayed satisfaction. You don't have to plant a seed and wait seven months for a harvest like God wanted them to. They got instant gratification. And this materialism, after seven years of living in that lifestyle, it was anchored in their heart. They had a real deep love, love for that. And so, and it's interesting, real note of prophecy right here, it's interesting, if you go to Israel today, they're back to farming. They're back to, you know, Israel is the world's third leading exporter of fruit in the world. Which is amazing, because they're the size of, like, New Jersey. It's crazy. So, they're back to that farming thing. So, this, this uh, vision is that God is expelling the heart of materialism back to its place in Babylon. 
So this woman is symbolized in a basket, and, he, and God says, I'm putting an iron lid over it. I'm smushing her in there. And then I got two angels. They're going to come with the wings of a stork, whatever that means. And they carry her back to Babylon and to its own place over there for its eventual destruction. That's the very simplified version of what this means in our language. God says, materialism, you guys are in love with it, and I am going to cast it out. I'm going to take care of this. Because I don't even know, I mean, even if they repented, I don't know if they could really change their heart, could they? Can you change your heart? Can you change your heart? The answer is no, you can't change your heart. You start thinking Christ-like. You start, you start reading the word of God, and you'll see God expel the woman. Whatever it is you're in love with, maybe it is a woman. <laughs> maybe it's materialism. Whatever it is that has a hold of your heart, God is totally able. Is that thunder? That's the what? God is totally able to do anything, even thunder in February in Colorado. I, what? Did the rapture just happen? What? I, I saw something too. I thought maybe. Wow. I'm just, okay. Whew. All right. Okay, so I, yeah, back to Zechariah chapter 5. There's this woman, and, and God is able to cast her out. Did you know 20% of Americans play lotto? 20%. That's one out of five people play lotto. People who make 13000 a year or less in the United States, on average, spend 5% of their gross annual earnings on lotto tickets. The odds of winning a Mega Millions jackpot are 175 million to one. The odds, so just to let you know what that is, the odds of an American male being Tom Cruise are 150 million to one, which are better odds than you winning the lotto. You are more likely to call heads twice, roll a six, then be struck by lightning than to win the lotto you are four times more likely to be struck by lightning twice in your life than win the lotto. What? In other words, you have a better chance of picking a Russian at random and picking Prime Minister Putin than winning the lotto. And if you do win, it's awful. It's awful. You think it's great. We all think, oh, if I won the lotto, it'd be amazing. It's not. Victoria Zell won the lotto. She won $11 million in a Powerball jackpot in 2001. That's about $14 million uh, uh, today with inflation. Uh, within four years, the money was gone, and Zell ended up in prison after taking drugs and getting drunk and deciding to drive her car. The car accident which ensued uh, resulted in the death of one and another person being paralyzed. Hmm. William Post III, his name was Bud, he won $16.2 million in 1988. That's about $30 million today. 
After winning, his ex-girlfriend sued him, claiming she deserved a share of the winnings. She won. Her brother hired someone to kill him and his wife, no doubt hoping to inherit the winnings himself. Williams quickly blew through the money, buying houses, investing in various business ventures proposed to him. Read, people probably scamming him. Cars and other such things for himself and his family and his friends, who incessantly bugged him for the money. And within one year of winning the $16.2 million, he was a million dollars in debt and filed for bankruptcy and started living on food stamps and $450 Social Security stipend. He died in 2006 at the age of 66. He said of winning the lotto, I wish it would have never happened. It was a total nightmare. I know you're thinking, I would never do any of these things. Right? How many of you thought that? Yes. Yeah, I know. I would buy, I would buy puppies. That's all I would do. I would give it all to the church. <laughs> Whatever. Yet the Lord is saying that this is all going to be destroyed. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 18. God, God wants to expel at least this, this heart of materialism. We've got to understand, man, that it can't be. God, it, will, it will handcuff us. It will trip us up. Materialism. Look at chapter 18, man. <clears throat> back in Zechariah 5, it said they were going to carry this basket back to Shinar. Shinar is Babylon. It is Babylon, okay? So, it's, that's the heart of Babylon. When, when you hear Babylon in the Bible, think materialism. Revelation chapter 18 is a chapter about the fall of Babylon the Great. That's, and what I want you to read or think when you hear this, this is the fall of the world's economic system. This is the fall of all materialism. This is what happens to the end of, it, of materialism. This is how all material, every iPad, this is how it ends. Every iPhone, every computer, this is how it goes down. Everything that, every car, every, every, everything that's riches, everything, this is how it goes down, okay? After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon is the great, has fallen, has fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean thing, and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So that's God's view of materialism. Is that something we want to be associated with? Do we want to drink of the cup of the wrath of the wine of the indignation of the woman that rides the beast from what? No, that's not what we want. We want to be pure to the Lord. We want to care about the things of the Lord, but this, this is not. And I heard another voice coming from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. 
for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed. Mix double for her in the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure. Give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart, I sit as queen and I am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord that judges her. Then the kings of the earth who commit, committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, this great city, Babylon, this, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. In one hour, everything everyone was materialistic for is burned up. In one hour. That's the end of all materialism. One hour, and it's gone. Every iPad, every amount of work, every file, everything in the cloud, everything that we care about seemingly with materialism, it's gone in one hour. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Mer- uh, merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, and every kind of cotton, uh, citron wood, and every kind of object of ivory, and every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, marble, with cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, Wine and oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses, chariots, and the bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. And what shall you? And you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who become rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such a great riches have come to nothing. Every shipmaster and all who travel by ship, sailors and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Then they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which you had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you, holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. The big picture here is that only your relationship with Jesus matters. Nothing else this world offers will last longer than one hour. I don't stand here and say, don't be materialistic. I say, Jesus is going to destroy everything you could possibly be materialistic for. So why would you want that? What does Revelation say? What does the Bible reveal? That everything that has to do with materialism is a distraction. So don't be distracted. 
all these shipmasters, all these traders, all the merchants, what it's saying is they were all distracted and they finally realized it. In the end, when the end comes, whether you see this or whether you, you die and go to heaven and you see it, any sort of materialism that was in your heart will cause weeping and wailing when you see it destroyed. Because you'd be like, man, I, I worked for years for that promotion. I worked for years for that job. I worked for years for that skill or that relationship. And all of it is just burned up. It's so sad. I don't want us to be sad. God doesn't want his people in Zechariah 5 to end up regretting their whole life because they were building their houses instead of working on the temple. They were into their own thing using the wood that they should have been building the temple with. They were building their own houses instead of being concerned about the things of God, the spiritual, their spiritual life. God's saying, that's in the heart and I'm going to expel it. You come to me, you spend time with me, and that will get expelled. Because what you see is, is Jesus tastes better than all those things. Jesus smells better. Jesus is far deeper and richer. And as we study in Ephesians, and as we've been studying, we'll continue, the riches of his grace are far beyond anything that can be earned or bought or any part of this materialism because they're in heaven and they're reserved in heaven for us, and they can't be destroyed. Moth can't get in and destroy them. Thieves can't in and take it. It's, it's sure. It's awesome. So I don't stand here and say, don't be materialistic. I say, Jesus is so much better than anything you could be materialistic for. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And uh, Zechariah chapter 5, which, uh, Lord, actually makes sense. It actually, Lord calls us to a deeper relationship with you and I never thought it would and forgive me for my doubts, Lord. When I first read it, I was, I was just confused. But God, your spirit brings such clarity and Jesus, if I just keep in my mind, this is all about Jesus, this is all about Jesus, Lord, you bring such truth. You bring such peace into my life. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in every single person's heart here. I pray if there's anyone who needs to pray, Lord, who needs to repent, Lord, that they would make short work of that with you. They would just turn to you right now and say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to, I want to be with you. I want you to be the most important thing in my life. Thank you for loving us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.